Welcome to the Community Fellowship Podcast, your way to stay connected with biblically-themed messages, discussions, and interviews from Community Fellowship in East Bernard, Texas. Learn more about our church at the cfeb.church website, check us out on social media at CF East Bernard, or attend an in-person service at 635 Main Street in East Bernard. We are a local church that works to make the love of Christ for all humanity known to our community and the world. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this week's content. All right. Well, as we get started this morning, I got a confession to make to you right off the bat. I think you need to know this about me before we go any further. You heard that I like movies. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. All right, I'm in the right company. I'm in the right company. All right. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is. It's something about the adventure of it, something about the heroism of just the littlest people, the hobbits, right? Um, just the friendships that are forged between the hobbits and the elves and the dwarves and the humans. There's just something about this beautiful, beautiful story that I absolutely love. But I think my favorite part in all of the trilogies is actually at the very end, after Middle-earth has already been saved, Aragon has been put as king and ministereth, and the hobbits are riding into the Shire. You might remember you see them, and they're, you know, they've got their, uh, their royal kind of garb on, and you can tell they've aged. They're not the young hobbits that started whenever they left from the Shire. And as they're coming in, you see all of the hobbits who have no idea what these four hobbits have done. Not only have they saved the Shire, but they have been instrumental in saving the entire Middle-earth. They're unsung heroes, right? They're the ones that nobody knew about. Faithful in their fight to save the things that they love, yet unknown for that very faithfulness. And so as we turn in God's word this morning, I wonder if you are familiar with these names. Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shama. You're like, oh gosh. I probably should know that. Is this a Bible trivia quiz? No, you don't. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. No, they're, they're not the most popular names. They're not Abraham. They're not Moses. They're not David. They're not. Those guys you probably would be Facebook friends with, right? <laughs> not these guys. They're the ones that are not known. But their story is still incredibly inspiring. And so this morning, I want to look at that story. So if you turn with me, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 23, and we're going to start reading in verse 13. I know they're going to have it on the screen there too. Where's 2 Samuel? Just joking. I know, Old Testament. I know you guys have been going through uh, John, and I'm sorry to take you away. That's another thing I should say thank you to Pastor Ronald for too. He, he let me do a standalone instead of having to continue into the I am statements, but... All right, start reading. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, 
Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Well, my hope for us this morning is that we can look at these three men's lives and that their story might inspire us to also become faithful unknowns. So first, let's start by giving a little bit of context of the timeline of what's going on here in the passage. So the passage says that David is at the cave of Adullam. Now, you might remember that David is the the boy who defeated the giant Goliath, right? And he quickly rises to popularity in Israel. In fact, it's going to be something that makes Saul, the current king, extremely and insanely jealous. Because after David defeats Goliath and he continues to fight the Philistines, he comes back home into Israel and he hears this song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So Saul is completely jealous of this young man whose fame has started to spread in Israel. And so finally, Saul is just set on edge. He is dead determined that he is going to hunt down David. He's going to get rid of him. No competition for him. But instead of choosing to fight back, David, desiring to honor Saul as king, recognizing the authority that God has set him underneath, he runs away. And so this once praised prince of Israel is now hiding in the rocks. Definitely a low moment for David. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, Adullam is about 20 miles southwest of Bethlehem, where David's hometown is, where he grew up. So Adullam is actually this cavernous area that's Uh, A lot of scholars actually say that probably some of those caves could fit at least 600 men comfortably. So we're talking about a good stretch of some big, deep caves, right? And the word Adullam itself in Hebrew actually means hiding place. So it's a perfect place for David to be hiding. But things have gotten so bad for David that actually at one point before he goes to Adullam, he actually goes and hides in the town Gath. Anybody know who was from Gath? Goliath, right? He goes to the enemy's town to hide. So he's just absolutely at the lowest point that you can imagine. Now, let's look at 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2, because I want you to see something about David's time there in Adullam. So David leaves Gath, he left Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So it's while David's hiding out in the cave of Adullam that his family comes to see him. Now, before we kind of get like, oh, that's so sweet of them. They're so kind. What a great great family reunion. They're coming to encourage him. They're coming to build him back up. We've got to understand is to think about this for a second. If you're Saul... You're insanely jealous of David. Where's the first place that you're going to go start looking for him to hunt him down? Family, right? And so his family's not coming to him because they want to see him. They're coming to him because they have been basically kicked out of their homes. They've been driven out of their homes. And for them, David is their only hope. They're like, listen, we got nothing else. They've taken our land. They've taken our fields. They've taken everything else. We got nothing but David, so we're just going to put all of our hopes onto David. But they're not the only ones who do that. Look at the text, right? 
it says that these other guys start coming. So, so D- David's hiding out, and these guys look in verse, uh, oh, I forget where it was, sorry. Um, but the text says, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontent gathered around him. So David's hiding out. Again, his family's come down to see him, but these other men start coming down too. All these people who are basically frustrated with Saul's leadership and the government. Now, I want to make sure that we recognize who these men are, okay? So the scripture gives three descriptions of them, and I actually kind of laughed as I read them because it was like a pastor's dream, right? You know how pastors love alliterations, right? So there's three Ds that describe them, and I was like, oh man, that'll, that'll preach right there, right? So there's three Ds, and the Ds are they were distressed, in debt, and discontent. So some of these men, they've, they've experienced tremendous amounts of pain. Others owed some kind of, of debt that they couldn't pay off. And then others are just absolutely unhappy at the way that Saul has led his kingdom. And the, the truth is, this is exactly the type of heartache, though, that God had promised was going to happen. We're going to turn one more time. So 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. You can hear what happens. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they'll run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he'll take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So here's what we've got to understand that's been happening for the last 20 years. The very thing that God said was going to happen when Israel decided to make a human be king instead of recognizing him as their sovereign has actually happened. So just picture for a moment you're a local farmer, right? Knock at the door. Oh, that did a little bit different than I thought it was going to do. Knock at the door, right? In comes Saul's men. They just barrel through the doorway. And they say, how many sons are in this house? Two. All right, the oldest one's coming with us. He's going to start serving in Saul's army. He's going to be a charioteer. A few months later, knock at the door again. Saul's men. How many daughters in this house? Just one. All right, well, she's coming with us. She's now going to be a cook in the king's kitchen. So things kind of settle down. You're planting your vineyard. You're getting ready for a really great crop. The Lord, it seems like he's blessed you so much. And right as it's harvest season, Saul's men at the door again. Hey, listen, we've seen your vineyards, and we're going to section out some of this, and it's now going to become the king's vineyard. You can imagine, this just seems like take, take, take is all that seems to happen for these people. So you can understand when the scripture says that these men were distressed and discontent. So 
year after year, it's no surprise what we read there in chapter 22. Even though a king had the allure of satisfying all their desires, all the things that they want, they're left utterly hopeless and abused. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning. Do you feel that same way? You have put your hope in the promises of so many other things. Maybe it's a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a job promotion. Maybe it's even education. Yet they've all left you unsatisfied and discontent. They've left you feeling like a system has failed you. So, when these men come to David, what they're hoping to find is somebody who can commiserate with them. Maybe someone who's actually going to lead them to strike back and take back the things from the man that they see has hurt them so deeply. But instead, these men that are often called David's mighty men found so much more. I love the way that Gene Edwards pictures it in his book, Three Kings. He describes how a young soldier under the reign of Rehoboam, years after David has been king, he's trying to find one of these mighty men. And they're all older now, so most of them have passed away already. But he finds one last mighty man, and he goes and he asks him, what was it like to fight alongside King David, the great one? And he says, I'll tell you. I'll tell you of my king and his greatness. My king never threatened me as yours does. Your new king has begun his reign with laws, rules, regulations, and fear. The clearest memory I have of my king when we lived in the caves is that his was a life of submission. Yes, David showed me submission, not authority. He taught me not the quick cure of rules and laws, but the art of patience. That's what changed my life. David taught me losing, not winning. Giving, not taking. He showed me that the leader, not the follower, is inconvenienced. David shielded us from suffering. He didn't mete it out. So here's the truth. These three men, the ones that we're talking about, these faithful unknown, they recognized how the king had transformed their life. And there is no greater king, my friends, than Jesus. He didn't come to be served he came to serve. He didn't come to take vengeance, but instead he gave his life up as a ransom. And our king promises this very thing. He promises that we may have a life and have it to the full. And that fullness of life that Jesus offers transforms us. It transforms our pains into stories. It transforms our anger into purpose. It transforms our frustration into peace and it transforms our addictions into hope. Look again with me at 2 Samuel 23. Try to, try to picture what's going on here, right? So David's hiding, the king, hiding from the king in the cave. He's worn out from battling the Philistines, again defending himself from Saul, and just barely under his breath, he mentions, oh, what I wouldn't give for a good drink of water from the well of home. Have you ever done that before? You've been like reminiscing about something, something nostalgic, and you just kind of, just under your breath, just, oh man, I miss that, right? Emily and I, we grew up, you guys heard, in the Dallas area. We grew up in the same town in Irving. And there in Irving, there was this pizza place called Crystal's 
pizza. It was kind of like a tradition, right? You did everything there. Like we had our soccer sporting events. We'd have our parties there. The church, you brought your bulletin, you got discount, right? So we would go after church. It was kind of that place that was just incredible. Now, I couldn't imagine that if Emily and I were sitting here and we were talking about it and someone decided they were going to drive four hours in the rain, four hours back just to bring us a slice of pizza. That's crazy, right? That's absolutely insane. But that's what these guys did. Look what the text says. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carry it back to David. Why? What drove these men to do something so dangerous, so absurd? Listen to one commentator's thoughts. They did not do it because the task was straightforward and easy. In reality, the opposite was the case. Every inch of their activity was marked with danger. At any moment, they could have been captured and killed by the Philistines. They ran the risk of being regarded as completely stupid, and they persevered with their plan and brought water from the well back to David. So why did they do it? The answer is that they did it because they loved him. Their faithfulness to David was a result of their love for him. He'd helped redirect their ambitions. He had so transformed their character that they were willing to risk their lives for him. That is what the faithful unknown will do. Because they love the king, they're willing to pay the cost. The truth is, their response has always stirred my heart. And the reason I actually picked this passage is because it's the passage that God stirred on my heart when I began in ministry. As I just remember being there as an 18-year-old, just recently graduated, and reading through this passage. Our youth pastor had just left, and there were some freshman guys who needed someone to come alongside them to offer some mentoring, to challenge them, to help teach them. And so I felt called to do that. And so the thing that strikes me about this passage, the, one, the thing that overwhelms me is their response, right? They're willing to give their lives for David just to bring him a drink of water. And so all I could do is to ask that question of myself. Am I willing to do anything for you, Jesus? Anything. Will I be faithful in that? I'm going to be honest. I want to live a life that's willing to risk everything for Jesus. What about you, church? Are you willing to give everything for him? What if Jesus whispers to you to go serve on the edges of the Amazon River and love a tribe there? Are you willing to do that if if it's just his whisper to you? Because following Jesus is costly. It can cost friendships, it can cost old habits, and it can even cost our very lives. But Jesus didn't promise anything different Listen to what he says in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, we're willingly going to give up everything for him. It's worth it. Others may consider us foolish for following Jesus. They may even think our lives are fanatical to go off to serve and love some group of people in the Amazon jungle. But here's what we need to understand about these three men. 
They didn't risk their lives to get the credit. That's not what they were after. See, they, they weren't trying to kind of set themselves apart in David's group of mighty men. That's not what they were doing. In fact, the passage actually points to the opposite. So look back at the text in verse 17 there. There's no response from any of them when David pours out the water. I mean, you can imagine, they just risked their lives. Wouldn't you be like, whoa, whoa, whoa? But they don't do that. Because they recognize that they love Jesus, they love David so much that whatever he wants to do with that water, they're absolutely for it. That's because the faithful unknown don't want the glory. Instead, they want to make sure the one who deserves it receives it. They want to make sure the one for whom they risk their lives is pleased. They longed only for his approval, not the praise. Jesus alone deserves our worship. He's taken on the price of our sin onto himself. The one who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become where we never could be on our own. Jesus took our sin onto himself on the cross and exchanged it for all of his righteousness for us. Our sinful lives traded for his perfect life. So David poured that water out on the ground, recognizing that he wasn't worthy of such a sacrifice. These men had put their lives on the line in response to that whispered whim. Yet Jesus the one who is worthy of all praise and all sacrifice, instead chose to be the sacrifice for us. Instead of water poured out on the ground, it was blood poured out on the cross. Instead of a casual cause, it was the righteous will of the Father that caused Jesus to willingly give up his life so that you and I can have peace with God. One more faithful unknown. You're not going to know him. Thomas Kinn. He was an Anglican minister who lived in the 17th century through three monarchs, and he continually resisted the sinfulness of the throne. And in 1688, he, along with six other pastors, were imprisoned in the London Tower, sentenced to death by James II for defying a completely deceptive declaration. Now, Kinn escaped at the hands of his loving congregation who carried him and his companions to safety, but he was stripped of his pastorate just a year later by the king. Willing to give his life to honor Christ in addressing sin, willing to pay the cost of love for his king, he only wanted to please Jesus. He only wanted to show his gratitude. Years later, Thomas Kinn would pen the following words, words sung throughout the church still today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him here, all you creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Is Jesus transforming you? Will you live a life of love in response to our King? Will you give him the glory and the praise that only he deserves? Will you let your life be that of a faithful unknown? Let's pray. Father God, 
Your grace is so good. Your love towards us is overwhelming that you would send your son to die in our place, to take on the debt that we owed. Oh, Father, would you make us like these men? Would you make us willing to do whatever is asked of us, even if we look absurd and silly to those around us, but that we can look back and we can say, no, I lived a life as faithful as I could to the God and King of my heart. Father, you are worth it. I pray this in Jesus' name. If you have questions about this week's message or would like to start a conversation with someone about what it means to walk with Christ, please email pastor at cfeb.church. You can find earlier episodes of our podcast on our website at cfeb.church, where you can also give online to help support community fellowship in our mission to reflect and share Christ's love. We can also be found on many major distribution platforms like Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to stay connected. Thank you again for listening. Now go out and love one another like Jesus did.